You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. Before we get into what I want to talk about in this episode today, I just want to refer back briefly to last week's episode when we talked about meditation. Because since then, I've been speaking with one particular person who said, oh, meditation doesn't really do it for me, never did. But on inquiring as to how often she meditated, I discovered that she probably meditates about six times. Not six times a week, not six times a month, not six times a year, six times in total. And then she had the effrontery to say to me, oh, meditation doesn't do it for me. How would you know if you didn't try? Now, of course, the other point about it is that an awful lot of people, quite a lot of people have said to me, oh, I can't meditate. And I simply quote John Kabat-Zinn from the University of Massachusetts Medical School back at them. To quote Kabat-Zinn, he says, if you can breathe, you can meditate. It is one of the most natural things that we can do. And in particular, you know, if you practice breathing meditation, it is not just easy. It is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Noticing your breathing, managing your breathing, lengthening your breathing, Tuning your breathing into your nostrils only enables you place yourself in the reality of the moment in connection with the universe that you're actually breathing in. On the other hand, somebody else said to me a couple of weeks ago, those breathing exercises do nothing for me. And what transpired was she It was, and actually still is, obviously, an auditory person. The way in which people see the world largely breaks down as follows. About 45% of people are visual. About 45% of people are kinesthetic or touchy-feely. And about 10% of people are auditory. They're round numbers because obviously the odd person is gustatory. makes sense the world but through taste or smell you know as somebody said to me a couple of years ago ah I completely go back to my childhood when I smell a beef roasting because it took him back to his mother preparing Sunday dinner when he was young and carefree his words not mine but the point about how you appraise what's going on how you make sense of the world it means that for example if I were to say to you you, you make sense of the world by seeing what's going on, if you see what I mean. The phrase, if you see what I mean, is not a throwaway phrase, nor is it a turn of phrase. It is how a visual person explains how they are processing what's going on. Let me give you a feel for what I'm talking about. Okay, that is not a turn of phrase either. That is how a kinesthetic or touchy-feely person computes what's going on, understands what's going on, uses his mental machinery to cognitively appraise what's going on. And then, uh, of course, there is my friend who turns out to be one of the 10%, who would say to me, I hear what you're saying. (laughs) 
Now again, that's not a turn of phrase. It is her actually explaining how she sees, if I can use that word, how she sees the world. So whilst most meditation teachers will tell you that breathing is one of the most powerful ways to meditate, this particular girl couldn't do it at all. But boy, has she been able to tune her mind in and take control of her state of mind doing listening meditations, actually hearing the birds in the morning, hearing the words that might be said to her by somebody guiding her meditation, somebody like me. Hearing the breeze rustle in the trees. You get what I'm saying, don't you? All right, okay. That was an important aside by virtue of the fact that meditation, first of all, is something anybody can do. But you need to find what fits you best because ultimately there is no one right and only way to meditate. Even though many meditative traditions and some religious strictures will suggest you must do it this way, there is no one right way to meditate. You need to find what fits for you because ultimately what we're talking about is turning you on or should I say you turning yourself on. We turn ourselves on in meditation so that we can develop our ability to experience the here and now because when we actually experience the reality of the here and now we let our thoughts go, we get out of our own way and we begin to experience reality free of the muddied waters created by the 70,000 thoughts flashing through our waking mind every day. That's what meditation enables us to do. It is a mental fitness exercise. It is the practice that you train yourself with so that you can play the game of life in the cut and thrust of your day. So that you can, as I said a moment ago, turn up to the here and now. Now very often I would use a phrase like turn up to the wonder of the here and now. But I was on a Facebook live call with a group of people a, a couple of months ago and at the end of the call somebody commented in the comment section, what if you hate your now? And that's what I want to talk about now. Because clearly not every now is wonderful. Clearly, not every now is a walk in the park. Clearly, not every now is a perfect moment. And clearly, some people experience a string of nows that can be awful. What if you hate your job? Ah, we'll deal with that one first, because it's a very easy one to deal with. If you hate your job, first of all, it has nothing to do with the job. It has to do with your perspective on the job. We must remember that most of the flow research carried out by the University of Chicago in the 1980s was carried out on people working on the production lines in the auto manufacturing industry in Detroit, doing repetitive, boring jobs. Yes, they were repetitive, but those in flow, those in the zone, those experiencing the wonder of the here and now, weren't bored, because being bored comes from what you think about what you're doing. So if you hate your job, you have two choices. Number one, you can change your job, 
Or number two, you can change your mind. You can change what you think about it. I had this conversation a couple of years ago with one of my daughters in Paris who was all stressed out about how she disliked her job. And of course, me being her father, she wouldn't listen to me. So I sent her a video of a guy called Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you've ever come across Zig Ziglar. Search him on YouTube. Some of his videos are fantastic. I sent her a video of Zig Ziglar talking to a group of people about hating their job. And one particular lady in the front row of that seminar said, I really think my job is awful. So he brought her up on stage. And he said to her, is there nothing you like about your job? No, I hate my job. He said, well, what I want you to do when you go home from this seminar is I want you to get a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. And on the left-hand side, write all the things you hate about your job. And on the right-hand side, write all the things you love about your job. And she said, but I don't love anything about my job. And he asked her, do they pay you a salary? Uh, yes, she said. And she said, he said, you don't like that, do you not? You'd prefer to do it for free. She said, okay, okay, I'll put that in the right-hand column. He said, do they pay you a good salary? Oh, she said, yes, yeah, very, very good salary. He said, put that in the right-hand column. So off she went. About six weeks later, he was back in the same town doing another seminar and who walked into the room except the lady in question and she walks up the front and says to him it's amazing she said I did that exercise after I met you the last time she said I put all the things that I hated about my job on the left hand side and I discovered you know there's a load of things that I love about my job and he said, so what's happened in the intervening six weeks? She said, oh, it's amazing how the people in that job that I work with have changed so much. <laughs> she changed her mind. If you hate your boss, it's the same thing. You don't know what's going on behind the boss's front door when she or he goes home at night. You only know what behaviour they're displaying because in, prob in all probability they're normal crazy people. If you hate your boss, you can either again move your job or change your mind. It's the easiest thing in the world to change your mind, despite the fact that so many people have said to me, oh, that's easier said than done. We change our mind by not paying attention to the thoughts that lead us to the conclusion that we hate our job or hate our boss. Now, now what, as somebody else said to me, what if the boss is a real a real piece of work. Well then you need to start managing your boss because management doesn't work one way in an organization. Management, might, like every other relationship in life, is a two-way street. If you're just going to sit back and let your boss walk all over you, you're, you're not as much to blame as your boss, but you're certainly playing your part. We need to behave ourselves in a way that ensures that people know where the lines are drawn, where my lines are drawn, where your lines are drawn, the lines over which they cannot step. Again, people have said to me, I can't talk like that to my boss. Now that is one of the most debilitating thoughts that we all have in life. I couldn't say this, I couldn't say that. I was talking with, I was actually spending two days with a, a leadership team in the west of Ireland a couple of years ago, and they were talking about how 
many people lower down in the organization were underperforming. And one person in the room said, well, why, why are you not talking to them saying, I expect you to perform better? And a number of people in the room said, oh, I'd feel uncomfortable saying that, even though it was their responsibility to ensure that the people who were working for them performed up to a certain level. Someone in the room actually said, oh, I couldn't have a conversation like that with anybody. It would be a squirmy conversation. It would make me squirm. No. It would only make you squirm if you thought it would make you squirm. In the same way as people say, oh, oh, I would be uncomfortable saying something like that. Something like what, first of all? Now, here's an interesting point, because I had a conversation with another client a couple of nights ago when she was saying that she needed to have a difficult conversation with her boss. And she didn't want to tread on his toes because given that he wasn't the most secure person in the world, he might just shut down and the conversation would draw to an unsatisfactory close. I said, you need to push his buttons and pull his levers in a way. And basically what we were talking about was managing up, weren't we? You need to push his buttons and pull his levers in a certain way so that you get what you want out of the conversation. She said, but uh, what if I say this or what if I say that? I said, no, 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 no. That's not how you prepare for a conversation like that. You prepare for a conversation like that by meditating for a few minutes and making sure you turn up to the conversation so that you can be agile, mentally agile enough to dance through the conversation so that you say the right things and don't say the wrong things without thinking about whether or not you would be comfortable or uncomfortable saying any of the above. It's a different way of behaving yourself. It is a different way of approaching the wonder of the here and now, regardless of what you think of the here and now. All too often in life, when we have to confront a situation or confront a now that we don't like, or confront a person that is being difficult. We script what we would like to say and generally speaking discard the first draft because it would make us feel uncomfortable or we would need to be so brave and courageous to say what we want to say. Now let me stop there for a moment because bravery and courage are only words used by normal people using their minds normally, thinking that they need to be brave and courageous and afraid of their own shadow, the shadow cast by their own personality, by the way, who they think they are. Bravery and courage are words that are not used by people who are in the zone. Because when you're in the zone, you do what needs to be done effortlessly. And what you're doing is done effortlessly, even though to somebody who is normal, it might appear to be brave or courageous. But back to the point I was making. Most people, if they have to confront somebody, will prepare a script and then, as I said a minute ago, discard it because they'd be uncomfortable or wouldn't be brave enough to say what they need to say. Then they'll prepare another script and then they'll go along and meet the person and the script will go out the door the minute they enter the room because you can't prepare a script for a conversation. You can prepare a script for a presentation, <laughs> indeed only up to a point if you want interaction with your audience and questions and answers afterwards, but you can't prepare a script for a conversation. 
Because again, like every relationship in life, a conversation is a two-way thing. You have no idea what the other person is going to say. And the other person, by the way, has no idea what you're going to say. But what you do have are your preconceived notions as to what the other person thinks, what the other person is going to say, and your preconceived notions about how you're not going to be able to say what you need to say to get what you want to achieve. Now again, coming back to the conversation I had with a client a couple of nights ago, when I said to her, you know, you don't need to be brave or courageous. You can say whatever you need to say and it'll come out the right way if you're mentally agile enough. She said to me, but how will I know what the right thing is to say? How will I know what the wrong thing is to avoid saying? And my answer was really simple. When you change your mind, and by that I mean what I explained earlier on, when you come into the here and now, your subconscious mind will know exactly what the right thing is to do and say in the right way at the right time. How? Because that is the way your subconscious mind is designed. That's the way your subconscious mind was always designed. And that is the way your subconscious mind operates. 7,000 or 8,000 years ago, I could be out trotting through the bush looking for tonight's dinner and the bushes would rustle in front of me, and a man-eating beast would confront me. And my subconscious mind in that moment would know exactly what I need to do in the best and most effortless possible way to get me out of that situation. Or if I can put it a slightly different way, to enable me get out of the situation in which I find myself what I really, really want to achieve. In other words, in that case, survival. Your subconscious mind operates that way now. It's the same piece of equipment. You don't need to do anything major to it, although meditation will tune it up in a way that normal people would never, could never imagine. But your subconscious mind knows exactly what you need to do to get what you want to achieve out of any given situation. Now, there's obviously a missing piece to that jigsaw because most people haven't a clue what they want out of any given situation. An awful lot of people, for example, go into meetings because they've been told to go to a meeting. They have no idea what they want out of the meeting. I've met people who have gone to interviews and been marked absent during the course of the interview because they hadn't set their minds in advance as to what they wanted to achieve out of the interview, even though their logical mind would have known I want to get the job. The logical mind is useless though because the logical mind, unlike your subconscious mind, is tied in knots by the 70,000 thoughts in your waking head. It is the subconscious, present, focused, aware, insightful, doing mind that enables you effortlessly do what you need to do to get to where you want to go. The effortlessness means that bravery and courage aren't even optional anymore. They're not on the menu, they don't need to be. Because when you're effortless, you just do what you need to do, and boy, does it flow. So, in the easy to deal with situation, like I hate my now because I hate my job, or I hate my boss, you can either go and get another job, change your job, or change your mind. But what if the now you hate 
is a little more difficult to extricate yourself from. What if the now you hate is the result of the person that you are married to, the person with whom you have children, the person to whom you have responsibilities? Now I have to say, uh, I, I need to preface my remarks by saying that over the course of the 25 years I've been doing this, I now know, I would say, around a dozen people who, having learned who they really were, and having learned what was holding them back internally, and having learned how the misbehaviour of the normal crazy person with whom they were living was holding them back as well, simply packed their bag and left. Seriously. I know one particular individual who, the year after he had got married, had developed a serious, life-threatening illness. And he had it throughout the 22 years that he was married to his other half. Not his better half, his other half. I met him on a workshop in Dublin a number of years ago, and on the middle day of what was then a two-day workshop, he went home, packed himself a bag, and left. And within six months of leaving that relationship, he didn't have that life-threatening illness anymore. Now, I've an awful lot of clients, and indeed an awful lot of people with whom I'm in contact through, for example, the comment sections on Facebook, who I don't know. No, I know an awful lot of people who have cured physical illnesses as a result of getting their head straight. And let me put it this way, really simply. If you're ill at ease in your mind, your body is going to suffer from dis-ease. We might do a whole other episode on that. In fact, I think we will do a whole other episode on that. For now, I want to come back to the question that was posed to me by somebody a few weeks ago. What if I hate my now? And in actual fact, the question was asked by somebody whose now that they hated was related to the relationship that they had at home. The first point I would make is that very often the people with whom I work who are in dysfunctional relationships manage to refine or redefine their relationship as a result of raising their own game, so to speak. You know, I was talking to a client a few weeks ago and he told me this story. It's a joke, but it's a joke with a moral. He said, this guy goes to the doctor and in the course of a consultation with the doctor, he says, just as he's about to leave the doctor's surgery, he says, my wife is being abusive to me. Uh, have you any tablets for that? And the doctor laughs. He said, oh, I can prescribe something very particular for that. And he writes out a prescription and hands it to him. And the patient looks at the doctor and he says, what's this? Anytime your wife gets obnoxious, take a large mouthful of water and hold it until she stops being obnoxious. He said, yeah, do that. It works a treat. About six weeks later, your man is back in the doctor's surgery. He said, I can't believe how great that solution is. He said, tell me, is there some scientific basis for how this works? How does it actually work? He said, well, you can't get into an argument with a mouthful of water. You see, the point is, it takes two to tango. As we said earlier on in relation to any relationship, it's a two-way thing. So that if you're in a less than optimal relationship, you share some of the responsibility for it. I didn't say blame, because you can't blame people who are dead from the neck up. 
what you, and by that I mean normal crazy people, people who are not in control of their own state of mind. If you happen to be one of them, you can't blame yourself, but you definitely need to realise that you need to take responsibility for your own state of mind. When you do take responsibility for your own state of mind, when you do get out of your own way, when you do stop paying attention to the 70,000 thoughts in your own head that are getting in your own way, when you do start experiencing the wonder and reality of the here and now, you stop reacting. And very often when people stop reacting to somebody else, the other person stops reacting too. In other words, through your presence, your presence is the tide that rises all the boats around you. Now, some people don't want their boat risen. Some people are the kind of what my wife would describe as energy vampires who simply do not want to go the half a mile that it would take for you to meet them in the middle. Some people aren't just stuck in their boats. Some people are willfully drilling holes in the bottom of their boats and consequently are getting that sinking feeling. If you're stuck with somebody like that in your life, changing your mind is not going to have the desired effect. And if you want a life that is carefree and happy and successful, and we're all entitled to that, by the way, if you want a life like that, you have some decisions to make. But they're not hard decisions. You don't have to be brave or courageous. A person who is in the zone, in the here and now, clear of mind, knowing what he or she wants to achieve is always going to make the right decisions and do the right things in the right way so that everybody is a winner. I mentioned a few minutes ago somebody who had parted company with his wife after 22 years. In the end both parties realized that that had happened for them not to them and that it was the best thing that could have happened for each of the individuals concerned. I was going to say we're all moving forward in life all the time, but unfortunately that is not correct. There's only a small number of people who are alert enough to realise that we can move forward in life. Those people who want to move forward in life do so by taking responsibility for the piece of equipment between their two ears. Take responsibility for how they turn up to each here and now, with what attitude they approach each here and now whether or not they are present in the here and now. The day you start taking responsibility for your state of mind is the day in which your life is going to start changing. It is also the day in which the lives of those around you is going to start changing too. If you look at my website, you'll notice one of the comments from one of the owners of my online program, The Psychology of Success, when he says, I noticed a difference within 10 days, and so did those closest to me. We're all in this together, and if we can help each other out and make a positive difference for those around us, wouldn't that be wonderful, as well as looking after the most important person in your own life, which happens to be you. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me 
in my Facebook group, strangely enough called, To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-horton.com.